Global Enquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. We are sponsored by the International Relations Organization at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Hannah Malcolm. Today, we are discussing the rise of right-wing nationalism in Europe. To learn more about this topic, I'm sitting down with first-year intended history and public policy major Riley Fay, fourth-year foreign affairs and drama major Rhea Zilfikar and third-year philosophy and foreign affairs major, Luke Summers. To start us off, could you provide us with a basic definition of what exactly right-wing nationalism is in Europe? Sure. So right-wing nationalism is this combination of right-wing politics and populist rhetoric and themes. It works to bring up the people and start really with an individual focus. And with this, they take a lot of individual ideologies, especially anti-establishment and combine that with kind of fear to push these right-wing politics. For right-wing populism or nationalism, are there any trends that seem to be appearing among Western countries? Thomas Grevin, who's a political science professor from Berlin, states that the issues right-wing populists capitalize upon are largely the same across all countries, but there are obvious national specificities. So, for example, opposition to globalization is uniform when it comes to immigration, but differs in terms of degree and target. And in right-wing populism, immigration is not simply a question of economic competition, but it constitutes a threat against the presumed constructed identity of the people and their traditional values. And this leads to one of the trends Grevin identifies as the us-versus-them narrative that's found across such movements. So such narratives are based on the definition of the people as culturally homogenous, and right-wing populists juxtapose its identity and common interests with the identity and interests of others, um, usually minorities such as migrants, which are uh, supposedly favored by the corrupt elites. You mentioned a pattern of corrupt trends appearing in these countries. How do we see these trends playing out in America? So in the U.S., Intra-party populism is more prominent, and this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, the Republican Party has for decades more or less embraced tenets of the us-versus-them narrative. Thomas Grevin gives the example of Richard Nixon's Southern strategy in which he successfully exploited the racism of Southern white people. Also, Ronald Reagan uh, demonized African-American welfare recipients to win Northern suburban voters, and George H.W. Bush did the same with African-American convicts always playing on racist sentiments of white voters. So it's clear that we've seen a rise of these right-wing nationalist ideas within more recent years, but what about talking more historically? Has this been a common issue throughout Europe's history? So Europe has a strong history of different nationalist viewpoints. It's how we have borders in countries that previously didn't exist at all, especially in Eastern Europe. There are the more extreme examples of right-wing nationalism that we all probably immediately think of, such as in Nazi Germany. But in what ways was this right-wing nationalism at that time, for example, infiltrating all of Europe? Right. So after World War II, there was definitely a spread of far-right ideas, such as in both Czechoslovakia and Poland, areas in those countries that had originally been populated by ethnic Germans and German speakers found themselves torn apart by violence and expulsion 
because these countries were so determined to get rid of the others and people that they viewed as not loyal to their state or government. This also was seen in Hungary and areas where even non-Germans, they were anyone who was a minority was seen as a threat to the national government. So it's clear that this type of ideology has been around in Europe for a while. And I'm curious how we're still seeing these remnants kind of in today's society. Not even just in Germany. So across the EU, there's recently been trends of leaning towards right-wing ideas. This has been seen in Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, most of Eastern and Central Europe. And this can be ascribed to multiple reasons, partially their history and partially the rise of strongmen once again in Europe, such as Viktor Orban in Hungary. As these ideologies grow within the government and society at large in Europe, how exactly is this impacting the everyday lives of the people that are living in these areas? So I was talking to a couple of my friends who live in Germany, Max and Simone, who are studying psychology and law respectively, they've both lived in Germany their whole lives, and they've really seen a lot of the changes happen within their home country. My name is Simon, and I'm from Germany, uh, West Germany, Northern Australia, and I'm studying law. My name is Max. I'm studying psychology. I'm also from Germany, I'm from southern Germany, Baden-Württemberg. It really seems that in eastern Germany specifically, a bunch of people feel that they have been left out by the big parties and big government and their views aren't being heard. And every time they're not being heard, they tend to spiral into this worsening ideology, this worsening rhetoric, and there's not a whole lot you can do to save them anymore. Because every time you don't get heard, it's just more evidence that, hey, these parties are bad. And what goes on a lot with the nationalism in Europe, too, is they tend to just play off these people, the fears of not being heard, and fears of other crises that are going on. We all witnessed what happened with COVID in the last year, and that has been a huge problem for a bunch of these countries and led to a huge fire, right-wing nationalist rhetoric. The biggest issue is that the East German states after the reunification of Germany have been kind of ignored or also kind of Depending on who you ask, the a, a lot of stuff was sold off. A lot of companies were closed and forced off. So the, they're economically still a lot, lot Probably less nice. active. Yeah, there's big areas in Eastern Germany where there's almost no people living anymore. There's no industry. There's no like supermarkets even and stuff. Like the the entire infrastructure is really, really bad over there. They are mostly getting in, ignored by the larger parties. Yeah, and a lot of people of the young people move away from this um, from yeah. from this area to there's the bigger a, cities. Yeah, there's a big like brain drain going on yeah. in Eastern German states. Simone brings up some of the different uh, right wing parties that are growing in Europe in general, and some of the main ones that he mentions are the Freedom Party of Austria, the Swiss People's Party, and the United Right Alliance in Poland. A lot of these parties are working together due to their geographical location and the similar beliefs that they have in their ideologies, which kind of strengthen each other. When you see that one party in another state has the same beliefs as yours, it gives you some power, it gives you some fire that you can use to build up your own party by saying, hey, look what they're doing. What they're doing is right. We should do what they're doing, too. And it's this positive feedback loop and power. As one party grows in another state, they hope that the party in their state will grow as well. 
As these parties are collectively kind of feeding off of the energy of other ones in different states, how do we see this type of domino effect happening amongst these parties? Are, are they truly like gathering the support of the people living in these states or are they kind of just bouncing off of each other to build this larger power? And if so, is that working? It works in waves, and it's interesting to kind of watch. There was elections in Germany this year, and the AFD, the Alternative for Germany Party, actually dropped by a percent. And same with the Freedom Party of Austria. However, they're still kind of rising and growing at the same time, and other parties, especially like the Conservative People Party of Estonia, parties in Turkey, parties in Sweden and Switzerland— are growing at a strong rates, and it is based on geographical location, and you kind of see them all acting in the same way. Especially when so many of these states have Christian parties as well that are really hard to discern between the right-wing nationalist parties. The rhetoric is different, but a lot of the beliefs are similar, so you don't really need the right-wing nationalist party to get a lot of their policies even done when you have the Christian party. I mean, the FPÖ being in a government coalition in Austria together with the conservatives mm. for sure was a big push for the AFD they had a lot of talks with FPÖ leaders at the time as well there was like also some strategic overlap and there was some like coordinators of the FPÖ party also like um, were like guiding a bit of the AFD campaigns and stuff there's certainly a lot of overlap there and they're trying to learn from each other for sure the thing is like you know also in the end it's always up to the voters in the in the different uh, like countries of course i believe there is for certain like a giving and taking between the different parties and one party gaining in one country for sure helps out like other populist parties in europe whether they you know financially with um, also with like um, different people and coordinators um, working for other parties and as well and that kind of stuff that for sure as they agree on all of these beliefs and if their rhetoric kind of aligns what exactly are the beliefs that they're pushing through their parties and what type of propaganda are they using to get these messages across yeah a major theme is skepticism whether it's with immigration, with EU, with the euro, just with anything in general, is always being skeptical and, quote-unquote, asking the tough questions. When 2016, when there was a Syrian refugee crisis, almost every single right-wing nationalist party in Europe was all going against anti-immigration. They wanted stronger lockdowns. They didn't want to bring anyone in. They wanted the EU to do more. And that led them to say, the EU is not in our favor because they're not answering to our beliefs and demands. So a bunch of them are now anti-European Union as well. The anti-euro, it all just plays into each other. With the anti-European Union, a bunch of states too have been wanting to leave the European Union. And we saw with the UK and Brexit that it actually went through and worked. And during that same time period, a bunch of states were having similar ideas. Germany was, Austria, France was with Frexit. But again, once things kind of died down and are no longer pressing issues, they go away. A lot of these right-wing groups are no longer talking about leaving the European Union. They continue to say they don't trust it, and it's a breach of their sovereignty, but no one is really seriously taking it as a option for these states. They do it a lot with these social media and fiery speeches. Getting people engaged, getting people emotional, is the best way to spread your message, and it works. People get angry against it or people agree with it. And we see that a lot in the U.S. too, where emotions play a big factor into politics. And it's incredible to kind of watch people get fired up over these crises and then right-wing nationalism grows along with it. 
So the AFD is generally, especially when it comes to refugees and also like currently the COVID crisis, um, like incredibly like uh, populist and anti-science. Um, they are against any form of vaccines, uh, vaccine mandates. They are against most like um, regulations about like uh, testing during the entire refugee crisis. They were heavily anti-refugees. Uh, against uh, taking taking any refugees um, for a long time, they were also for leaving the re uh, European Union um, partially because it would help us like uh, enforce our borders more. Apparently, some of the major AFD politicians wanted for the German military to shoot people coming over the border illegally. You mentioned how the recent rise of immigration in Europe was playing a big factor in the rise of this right-wing nationalism. I think that immigration, I think we see that in America, kind of brings out people's nationalistic ideologies when they feel like they don't want these people coming into their country. And Europe has seen kind of a similar trend in regards to that. Could you touch a little bit more about how people in Europe are reacting to these immigration trends? Yeah, it's interesting because you always see a bunch of anti-immigration rhetoric and as Simone and Max point out, there's not really that much immigration. And even if there is immigration, it's not in the places these right-wing parties are really spot going for. They say it's happening in their town or their city. And when you look at the data, it's not. It's happening in urban centers. It's happening where the cities are more culturally diverse, more welcoming. There are less problems. Yet right-wing nationalist groups are saying it is almost replacement theory, that they're kind of taking your jobs, they're taking your livelihood, they're taking your culture but there's no proof for it. And it's it's a really interesting kind of hypocrisy belief that these right-wing nationalist groups use and just hope no one calls them out on so they can continue to grow. Yeah, also, interestingly, um, the Eastern German states where the AFD is more popular actually have the least refugee-like population mm, in the yeah. states. So it's not even like a thing that they have to worry about, like getting tax money spent over. So it makes actually no sense that they are complaining about anything. Like it's all about the worth of the people. Like they just have this imagination in their head that, oh, so many people from uh, Saudi Arabia comes and now everything changed here. But actually, like, there's nothing really changed on the population here that you feel or see outside before or after. But we do see that in the U.S. as well. We've been having border problems and immigration concerns for years when really immigration has not caused any problems and it's been extremely beneficial to our country as a whole. Yeah, I think that really goes to show kind of the power of the rhetoric of these groups and like when they are able to bound together and have this larger outreach, like as an American looking at European issues, it seems like that might be at the forefront of their issues, even though it's not actually impacting them just because of the headlines I'm reading. But I guess that's a lesson learned in being more cautious about reading headlines, which I think a lot of right-wing nationalism is able to capitalize on. How have these fears and these reactions been similar and different to the type of reactions we've seen from a lot of Americans on these issues of immigration and other issues as well? We have a lot of similar core beliefs with the right-wing nationalism in the U.S. being anti-immigration, being very pro-state, being pro-your country. Same with European right-wing nationalism. But we play off each other a lot as well. Right-wing nationalism in Europe, especially over the last four years, took a very hard right turn with Trump in office. And they, Max and Simone, have said that a lot of people were basing off their policies on what Trump would be saying as well. So they were almost getting examples and this kind of guideline from our 
government on how to engage in right-wing nationalism and populism in their countries. I mean, it for sure influences um, German populist movements a lot as well. They were really writing off a lot of the stuff Trump like uh, talked about as well. They really hailed him as like a, like a really great American president and a great leader of the free world. With with some stuff they were with the, with an same politics like with with COVID, it was like. Yeah, they had very similar. some similar points, and also with the um, immigration st immigration yeah. stuff, like being close to Russia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they are very pro-Russian as well. Also, and but also the immigration stuff with like no uh, immigrant immigrants to the country. Yeah, exactly. Like in close borders, this is also some topics they have the same. And also, I mean, just just like uh, like because so much online discourse is like heavily guided by american politics in general uh, a lot of these like american movements also come over to germany as well like especially the qanon movement also got quite popular here as well which of course you know started in the us so um there's for sure like a lot of overlap between like populism in the us and in germany or in europe in general when leaders do not call out violence and try to stop it, they see it as a yellow light. And they kind of are hesitant to at first, but when no one stops them, it's go right ahead. And in Germany, there was even a joke of an insurrection against a parliament. It wasn't really happening. It was about 20-some people. But in the U.S., we saw an insurrection happen on January 6th. It can really spiral very, very fast when people are not taking actions, when leaders are not trying to stop these actions. So core beliefs are extremely similar, but the way they go and how serious it becomes to really, really differ in our, these countries. And it's interesting to see how we play off each other, but we can also deter each other from doing this again. I think it's really interesting how these core beliefs line up, yet we still see such like different displays of right-wing nationalism. And I'm also curious, obviously America kind of still bound to this two-party system. So like you're talking about with Trump, there's like that right wing nationalism was able to really show itself more obviously, maybe, but in the past, maybe it was more hidden behind the Republican Party. In what ways does the difference between this two party system and the larger party systems that they have in Europe and your different European countries allow for right wing nationalism to kind of present itself more in government? That's a great question. With the U.S. and our two-party two system, both parties have to engage in like overarching and wide kind of beliefs to get votes. But with the electoral system in a lot of European states, it will either be first-past-the-post or proportional representation. And because of that, you can strictly have far-right groups with this rhetoric, unfiltered. They may not get majority votes, but they'll still get seats in the House, especially when, when electorates are allowed to vote for multiple parties and multiple candidates. However, there still tend to be more conservative parties that are broader reaching, but they'll form coalitions with either people who have similar beliefs. Not as common, they tend to form coalitions with opposite parties to really get everyone happy. But they have more votes. You can have more parties, but they're all kind of believing these same core beliefs. It just depends on how they present themselves. So what about on the larger scale? In what ways have we seen these ideologies influence the larger economies and life in these countries? The bulk of these parties tend to be white, working class, or unemployed. So even though the bulk of these parties are made up of working class or unemployed, the leaders of these groups are not, and they tend to be wealthy, well-educated, and extremely good at exploiting opportunities at any chance. They tend to be this false representation of the party, 
and just build off these ideologies, even though they themselves probably don't believe them and doesn't really benefit them. They just want more power and it works in a lot of the ways too. We see a lot of right-wing leaders who have built a long foundation of business or going around and exploiting different groups. And especially as Simone and Max talked about in Germany, they represent the Eastern groups. They themselves come from Western Germany and a more wealthy, educated, stable environment. Based off of these different trends in politics and within society itself, how are you predicting the future of American politics to look based on these past European trends and past American trends? I think we really have to be observant of the rhetoric that these parties are using and look at what they're saying because we've fallen in these populism traps before and we know how they work. We know that they're playing on irrational fears. They're trying to get people riled up. They form during crises and they kind of latch themselves on to these one, this one idea that everyone feels in their heart. And that's why they work, but we can't let the emotions get the better of us. We have to continue to be stable and level-headed while understanding everyone. Narrow-minded, kind of selfish ideology that leads to a lot of these right-wing politics. I think for the U.S., we had a real big slip this last few years, and it showed a lot of unfortunate true colors of Americans but we're going in the right direction generally. I believe there is embedded progress for us all, but we have to be committed to that progress, to better ourselves, to better each other, and not stop that. Because every time we slow down that progress, right-wing nationalism and populism will sprout up and take control. And just never letting yourself down and never stumbling because it's right behind you all the time. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, as Luke mentioned earlier, that these sort of nationalist ideologies, they feed off of fear and anger, and they also show a common trend of oversimplifying um, certain issues um, and coming with oversimplified problems and solutions for them. So it's important to just be cautious of what sort of propaganda is being fed to us and not falling into these traps of seeing each other as others. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Enquirer. And thank you to Riley Fay, Luke Summers, and Rhea Zilfikar for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, we would like to thank our special guests, German psychology and law students Simone and Max for appearing on this week's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook.